Hi, welcome to this edition of Applaudable Perspectives. And I have a, the great pleasure of talking to someone that I've known for so many years. And we've had so many antics and worked on projects together and had lots of laughs and uh, great storytelling. So I want to introduce you to my brother in crime, Mr. Eric Paul. Eric is another New Yorker. So Eric Paul, welcome to Applaudable Perspectives. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you so much. I'm calling from uh, beautiful Music Row on Historic 16th Avenue, and my friend Eric is splits his time between Texas, Austin, and uh, and Music Row. So, what have you been up to, my dear? Tell talk to us. What have you been up to? You you we're wearing lots of hats these days, aren't you? Yes, I um, I'm continuing my journey in the music business, and I um, recently in the last like six or seven years started dabbling in real estate and I'm brokering commercial real estate deals in Austin, Texas, um, in addition to my music. So that's, that's kind of fun. And you're also singing, so, singing on the weekends and music directing. So it's never left you. Music is still very much in your life. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey. You were originally from New York State, a little bit farther south, closer to the city than, uh, than I'm from, and you, your dad was in the military. So just give us a little snapshot of your growing up, your background, Eric. Well, from the time I was uh, maybe in el late elementary school, I, I completely got focused on music. I, I was already playing piano, uh, started at an early age, and in, I think it was sixth grade of elementary school or something like that, maybe fifth grade, I started having a desire to play the trombone, and I excelled in that to the point where I was the uh, first chair trombone in the All-State New York Orchestra in 10th grade. Wow. Not easy to do. No, that was really amazing. So you, so in, in, when you were in high school, you were playing trombone, and in 10th grade, you made All-State in the band competition, which is pretty rigorous. I, I was in All-State choir, but All-State band is, is amazing. That's, a, that's great. And why, why the trombone? Did... Was there a song that just turned you on, or did you like big band music, or why the trombone? Well, we had an old Victrola in our house that came from my great-great-grandparents' house. I have that now. It's an upright one. And there was, a, there was, there was these thick records, and uh, my favorite song was a song called Yes, We Have No Bananas. Oh, gosh! It was, <laughs> it, was, it was this crazy song, and it had a trombone player playing all through the song. Oh, my goodness. And, and I was obsessed with the trombone, and that's how I got into playing trombone. But anyway, when it came time to go to college, I was in pursuit of a... Obviously, I wanted to be a music major, but I was also very interested in technical things. I had always you know, started uh, having tape recorders uh, around when I was uh, very young. I had a tape recorder. My father uh, was in the military, and he he traveled, and he brought me a tape recorder one time, a reel-to-reel, -reel when I was 
pretty young and I used to record things all the time. Okay. So anyway, so I decided to go to Fredonia State University, which is up near uh, south of Buffalo, New York, which is on the other side of the state because I grew up on Long Island. And they had just opened a recording program in the music department called Tone Meister. It was a Bachelor of Science degree in sound recording technology. And it was, there was two colleges in the whole United States that were uh, having this program. And it was University of Miami and Fredonia. And they patterned the programs after each other. And I was the first uh, class that ever was in such a thing. So I, I went through that, and in my junior year of summer between my junior and senior year of college, my father, who was a pilot in the Reserve Navy out of New York City, was talking with his co-pilot, Art Ward, and he was telling him about his son that was in a recording program in college. Mm -hmm. and I, Art happened to be the business partner of the famous Phil Ramone, who is a famous producer that produced Billy Joel and Paul Simon. And they had a wonderful recording studio in Manhattan called A&R Recording, very famous place. Mm -hmm. Steve Dan made all their records there, and it, it, the history of it is amazing. It was the old Columbia studio, lots of orchestral stuff, all the big Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know, Barbara Streisand, all that was all done there and so Art told Phil about me and Phil said well I think we would love to have him come join us and do his internship which was astounding to them because they had never heard of such a thing in the heyday you, you if you wanted to be a recording engineer you had to start cleaning toilets and that's kind of how everybody got started and went up the ropes that way. But, but I, I, uh, I was able to enter as an intern, and in January of 1980, I started. Uh, I, we lived on Long Island, and I would commute in on the railroad. I would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they had me getting there early. And I started. All of a sudden, I found myself in the studio with Billy Joel and Tell Ramon working on Glass Houses, and Paul Simon was doing a record called One Trick Pony, and Karen Carpenter did a record, her last record when she was alive. And um, this studio had four different studios, and there was a lot of things going on. And so, you know, I would be, we had two locations right straight through Times Square, uh, between, the, and I used to march with my hand truck up and down the streets in the morning delivering the masters for Billy Joel. They'd be working on it over at one location. They wanted to work on the next day. And I'd be marching through the streets of New York with, with believe it or not, John Lennon was working on Double Fantasy in that studio. And, and, uh, and uh, I was living in New York at the same time, and we didn't know each other yet, but I was at MTV, and John got killed working on the project, right? I mean, you guys, we were working in the studio when John and Yoko were there. Yeah, yeah. They, well, we, we weren't allowed to be in the studio with them because it was very, very private, but they would always work in the evenings. And when we knew they were coming, we would, we would, um, uh, the studio had a 
had a back wall in this control room, and there, the, the, there was equipment in the back wall, and there, and there was a room behind it with a stairwell that went up to a projection booth, which was above this control room because they did a lot of movie scoring. And we would hide out in that back room, and you could hear and see everything. We were three feet from everybody, and they didn't know we were there. So we used to, we used to hide out in there and watch Yoko and John and the engineer working on Double Fantasy. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So talk, and that was such talk, an interesting thing. So talk, talk about, um, and that was a horrible time. I mean, he was 40 years old when he was gunned down by Chapman. And I remember I was going to eat dinner on that side of town at uh, Capi des Artistes and came home that night. And then, of course, like everybody, heard it on the radio and, you know, we were all in shock. T- talk about what that day was like when, when he passed away. What do you remember from that time period? Well, I had already... So, so this I worked on this. This was being worked on in the late spring and early summer of 1980. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happened is the studio had closed by December of 1980, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up in Nashville because Phil Ramone. I came in one day to work and to the studio, and he took me up to his office and he handed me a pile of $100 bills. It, mm-hmm. was, it was thousands of dollars, and at the time, that would have been a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, compared to, you know, a couple thousand then was more like four or $5,000 today or more. And he handed me this money, and he said, Eric, take this money and go home and get your stuff together and move to Nashville and... When you get there, dial this phone number, and he gave me the phone number of a famous man named Jimmy Bowen, who produced many records in Nashville and ran record companies. But anyway, so I I took the money and left, and so so that's why. So when John Lennon uh, passed in December, of course I was already I was home already, and I was getting ready to move to Nashville because okay. I moved to Nashville in January, or when it, it was right in that time zone. Time zone, yep. Anyway, so so January 1981 is when I actually moved to um, Nashville, mm-hmm. and uh, and so uh, what was ha- what happened is uh, when I got there, I uh, dialed that phone number, and and sure enough. It was uh, Soundstage Studios in Nashville, and I, I asked for Jimmy Bowen, and he actually came to the phone, and he said, yes, I, I've heard about you. I I, um, I would love for you to come down to the studio tomorrow. And so I went down, and he hired me, and, and I started working with Bowen as an assistant engineer. Bowen was really an engineer. He had an engineer named Ron Treat, wonderful man. And I was, I was kind of like his. I was the second engineer. I was, I did a lot of the stuff, you know, the setting up and tearing down and running errands and things like that. And that's how I got started in Nashville into the country music scene. And it just blossomed on from there. I mean, many, 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 many stories. I I ended up, uh, I ended up getting moved over to the Glazer Brothers studio mm-hmm. uh, by Bowen because there was an opportunity there because there 
engineer had um, had moved on to another location to start a production career. That happened to have been Scott Hendricks. Mm-hmm. And um, so then um, I found myself as an engineer for the Glazer Brothers, which was Hillbilly Central. You know, that was a very famous studio. The Wanted, the Outlaws record was was done there. And, and, and when, when they had that big country music uh, special on PBS, uh, a couple of years ago, and of course, half of the history of of uh, of what was going on kind of took place in that building. It was it was a crazy, Talk- crazy wild place. So this is like baptism by fire. You were like the youngest guy in the room, I'm sure, as as I was the youngest woman in the room at the time, the youngest girl in the room, and probably the only girl, actually, if if, if truth be told. Uh, what kind of projects do you remember? Some of the the artists that you work with with Bowen, and and what what was the climate like back there? And then describe to our listeners what was Nashville like. Who was hot? What well, was coming well, up? It was first of all, Nashville was completely different than it is now, and and it was it was the charm of Nashville in musical history is that there was a few studios in the earlier days. But most of the business and everything that took place was in these houses. There was these these houses, which you happen to be in one, mm-hmm. Pam. Your office is in one of those historical houses on Music Row. But but anyway, so um, so by the time I got to Nashville in 1980, of course, it, it was still pretty much the old music scene. It had expanded. There was a number, a lot. Of, more studios and but everything still was in in houses mostly and uh glazer was in a house and um anyway so it uh when i first started working for bowen bowen had just moved to town maybe he moved from la like two years before i got there and he had been uh working with the at the glazer studio and he had just moved over to soundstage and he really had just become the the leader and president of uh, Electra Records in Nashville, and they were just building their roster. So I remember, I actually one of the first records I worked on was the Rowdy album with Hank Williams Jr. And that was when Bowen literally that was. He, that was when that record was a classic, you know, and, and, um, it was the beginning of Hank Jr. And, uh, you know, I, we, we, I did the first sessions that Bowen ever did on Eddie Raven. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. He became a really big, uh, name. Hold on one second. I have to clear oh, my throat. It's okay. <laughs> and I got to work with Eddie, uh, at RCA. Eddie went over to RCA. And 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 Bowen for people who don't know this, um, Bowen actually uh, well he had what Dean Martin and Sinatra in Los Angeles, and he himself had a a hit with Party Girl, but when he came to Nashville, he really changed the industry by bringing digital recording here. Everything was analog up until that point. He was one of the pioneers bringing that and escalating the budgets and and uh, kind of broadening the sound of of what a record was at the time. Am I right? Absolutely, Bowen was Bowen was um, as usual with with most producers that are successful. 
he was an engineer and he was a very, very, very good engineer in LA. And, and that's how he, he used to engineer these huge orchestral sessions with, and then I, I, I don't, I think he went on to produce Dean Martin or, uh, you know, those kind of things, but he used to engineer a lot. And, um, that was how he cut his teeth. So he was always very much on the forefront of technology. And yes, we had, I was there when we, when I, when I, in 1980 or 81, there was no, digital tape recorders were not invented yet. I mean, people were playing around, the CD was just being invented, really. It was just now coming out and everything was records up to then. And we used to record on tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that now for people to understand what digital is, digital is a, it was the predecessor to the computers that we use today. And so it was, it was recording on these tape machines, but it wasn't recording signals on tape the traditional way. It was recording data. So it was called digital recording. And he was the first person that brought these machines into the national scene because they were very expensive. Um, at the time, they, they cost as much as a person's house, you know, a normal person's house. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were very expensive and you had to be, anyway, so he, he introduced all that and, um, and, and was a pioneer in, uh, in that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Little did we know that it was going to end up to where it is today, which is uh, Pro Tools and computers and you know that's half the problem is that the big studio scene is diminished now people still go into these studios to make big records but most of the time a lot of the time the uh you know records are being made in people's homes and different warehouses and places they they set up this equipment and uh and and it's just really changed the technology, and that's sure. that's uh, the truth. You told me a funny story once uh, about Bowen, and um, one of his artists brought their dogs into the studio. Would you like to share that story? Well, Pam, I know you like this story. So so, how about an unnamed artist brought brought brought. Uh, brought their dogs into the studio one one time and um, right when they were starting a record and uh, it was quite a scene when the artist put the the dog down on the on the console and the con and, and, the, and the dog uh, went to the bathroom on on the console and it was a brand new board and it shorted the whole thing out <laughs> smoking and, and it was it was really quite a scene and um, that 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 record never got made because that particular artist uh, left the studio and it was a very it was a very funny moment and uh, <laughs> I it, you had to be there to believe it but, but anyway so the there, there's all kinds of things well you happen you got to work with the- cowboys talk about characters you work work with cowboy Jack Clement and uh, what just wonderful stories oh, about I, Jack I, oh I, my I, god you know Okay, so Cowboy Jack Clement, Jack Clement was, was uh, is, he's passed away, but he is, he was one of the most famous 
people around in the music business as far as musical history. He he was the engineer um, in Memphis um, uh, at, at at Sun Studio in Memphis, mm-hmm. and he uh, ended up uh, starting his career there and. Um, and then he went on to become the very, very famous producer. And um, he was friends with the Glazer brothers, with Tom Paul and all that. And I kind of got, it was kind of like a big family. And he had his own studio on Belmont Avenue. And uh, he was producing an album on Johnny Cash called The Adventures of Johnny Cash. And this is the most interesting story because what had happened is something, something, they had started this record and I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, uh, Jack and, uh, and, and, and Johnny Cash got, I, I guess they had some kind of a disagreement with the label about something and they, they literally took the, the, the big two-inch tapes, the masters, they had started this record, and they, they literally unwound them and wrapped them around the building. <laughs> oh, my God, you're kidding. I've never heard that story. I'm not surprised, though. Oh, my God. That's great. And, you know... They ended up getting whatever it is that they wanted, and 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 then they had to. We spent the next six months in the studio trying to recreate everything that we had wound around the building. Or I, I didn't do it, but they, they did it. But but wow. uh, it so, was it was so funny. So that that record really was an adventure. And then, of course, another character that we both worked with is Mr. Towns Van Zant, the late great Towns Van Zant also a character and uh, you worked several projects with Jack and with his his uh, widow Janine Van Zant and uh, let's talk about that a little bit you still do well, pro- you still do projects we, for Janine from time to time yeah well you have to back up and, and realize how I met towns so I in 1989, Fred Foster, the famous man that Monument invented Monument Records in Nashville, which was a he produced Pretty Woman and Chris Christopherson, all the Roy Orbison stuff. Yeah, and he he invented he 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 discovered uh, Dolly Parton. Yep. But anyway, so 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 the late Fred Foster and I were working in Nashville at Norbert Putnam's studio in 1988. And uh, he had gotten together with Willie Nelson and they were starting a project called The Horse Called Music. And Fred had gone down to Texas and recorded a track on this one song, The Horse Called Music, and brought it back to Nashville and brought it to me to work on with him. I was engineering. And Willie ended up coming to Nashville to do some overdubs and work on that 
song, and that's when I first met Willie Nelson. And um, we really hit it off. I mean, it was it was it was really a wonderful wonderful experience. His wife Annie was with him. They weren't married yet. She was pregnant with Luke, and um, so I worked on that song. And this might have been in October or something of that year, '88. So in January of '89, or right around Christmas time of '88. My phone rang and it was Willie. And he said, Hey, Eric, I bought you a plane ticket. I want you to fly down to Austin, Texas to engineer my new record that I'm going to be doing with Fred. And so he said, Here's the, you know, here, you get on the plane on this day. It was like January 3rd or 2nd or something. And, and so I did it. And, um, Beth Nielsen Chapman was on the plane with me. She had written a song called Nothing I Can Do About It Now, mm-hmm. and he wanted her there, too. So we we came down, and um, I set the recording studio up as best I could. There was nobody to help me. The place had been closed down. Willie let me in. I didn't know where anything was, and he told me that in four or five hours they would be in to record. And... So anyway, so there I was, and I got it all going, and I got it up and running, and sure enough, the band came in, and and we were ready to do something, and Willie comes in, and normally when someone's going to record, they we usually test things out, you know, and make sure that things are working, but in this case, Willie just came into the studio, sat down, looked up at me, and said, hey, Eric, turn on the tape machine. <laughs> and I turned to, I turned on the tape machine, and Al popped a number one hit called Nothing I Can Do About It Now on the first take. Nothing I Can Do About It Nothing Now. Yeah. yeah, I've got a long list of real good reasons yep. for all the things I've done. And um, so then he came in to the control room, and before we even played it back, he, he looked over at me and he goes, Hey, I, I got this condo over here, and... Um, why don't you go back to Nashville and finish this record and then move down here so we can make some music. So I did all that. Anyway, that's when I met, that's when I met Towns because um, he was working on a 60 song collection of songs for Tomato Records and uh, here in Austin. And I ended up being the engineer on that project one of the engineers, and um, that's how I met Towns. And it, it, it went on and on, long stories, but ultimately Towns ended up passing away uh, because he broke his hip in Memphis. And um, I had become friends with um, I had become friends with uh, Janine, and we decided after he passed away to make a record because he had um, gone to his neighbor's house and recorded some guitar vocals on these like cassette tapes, and she had them and she brought them to me, and I took those raw recordings and built an entire record around it called a far it became the a far cry from dead album and you actually worked on that pam yes i did and we were working with uh fletcher foster 
right? Wasn't that Far Cry? Yeah, Far, yeah. Far Cry from yeah, we were working with air. We were working with well. Uh, it was it was Arista Records, mm-hmm. uh, Arista in in Nashville, and um, Tim Dubois was the president, mm-hmm. and um, Scott Robinson was the head of the of that label of the the sub label, mm-hmm. and um, anyway, it's a long long. That's another interesting story. We made that when we made that record. You know, Janine funded it. We made this record. We didn't have a label, and it was it was uh, it was an, it was an amazing project, a very magical. When we got toward the end of it, I had mentioned I don't know how Tim. I, I somehow I had mentioned that I was doing something to Tim Dubois, and he uh, he had me send over a. At the time, we used well. I guess we had CDs, so I sent over a CD of the mixes before I even had finished the record, really. And that was on a Friday, and um, the, the the following Monday, uh, Janine got a phone call, and and they they wanted that they wanted to put that record out on on that label, and that's how quick and easy that was. And um, it was it really got off to a great start. And we had that we had a single, and um, I just rem- I remember having a, a meeting in Fletcher's office, and Janine, I said, Janine, you got to dress up because she she would dress pretty casually, and I said, you got to sit and work and um, you got to sit, you know, come to the label, so you know, dress up a little bit, maybe put a bra on, you know, I said to her, <laughs> and she comes walking in and she's got this mini skirt. And, uh, and very fitted, and 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 she was, you know, Janine was Janine, and and she she sat down, and we're going to have a marketing meeting about a far cry from dead, and she reaches in her purse and she pulls out this metal box, and she sets it on Fletcher Foster's desk, and she said, uh, T- Towns wanted to be here for the meeting, and she had Towns's ashes in the in the box. <laughs> And Fletcher looked at me, and he called me later, and he said, you are going to continue to work with this, right? And he goes, this is a little weird. And I said, just roll with it. It's going to be fine. It's going to be great. But it was a very cool project, and we went to South by Southwest that year and launched it, if you remember, and, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah, well, she had town around for that whole project, and we... She kept that urn with his ashes on on the console, <clears throat> and um, we had all kinds of crazy stuff going on during that record, and and it's re- it's just it's just amazing how that all went. Really, it was it was uh, it was uh, uh, it was a very very interesting project. I'll tell you that. And you listen when I listen to that record. One of the the label. Pardon me. <clears throat> um, I I'm, <clears throat> have something caught in my throat. Sorry. That's okay. Take your time. Go ahead. We'll edit. Start again. Um, I don't know where I was now. You um, talking about Far Cry from Dead and some of the things that oh, happened. Oh, Far Cry from Dead. Yeah. Just a, a lot of a lot of amazing things happened on the on that project, and it was uh, it was it was quite astounding. 
We got a lot of really so, excellent press coverage, I remember, at the time. And, um, you know, he still, he still has loyal fans and, of course, loyal fans throughout the globe. And uh, Towns never thought he was going to live, you know, he never thought he would reach old age. He used to say that. I think he was, what, 53 or 54 when he died. Um, it was shocking. Shocking and not shocking, actually. Um, some of the other folks you work with, Billy Joe Shaver and... Didn't you work with uh, Waylon also? And oh, I've worked with so many people. All the outlaws. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's it's. Uh, well, we tell tell we the first. One of, one of the, go ahead. One of the, one of, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, you you finished. My apologies. You you were saying some of the interesting people that you've worked with include. Well, my one of my favorite artists that I ever worked with and what was one of the most enjoyable periods of time, and I say period because it was six months, was the Emmylou Harris Bluebird album ah. that, that was produced by Richard Bennett. Okay. What a, that, now that, that preceded when I went to, so that was about 87 or something like that, and uh, that, that, that was before I went to work for Willie. And um, that was just the most wonderful experience, that record, because Emily really loves to make records, and uh, she, has a, she has her own way of doing it, and it was such a, a joy to be uh, around her every day for four or five months. And, um, and that was Warner Brothers, right? Yeah, that was a Warner Brothers record, uh -huh. and uh, we became lifetime friends. I mean, I I still call Emmy on the phone, and um, we eventually will do something again. The the uh, Willie and Emmy were very close friends. Mm -hmm. She she actually, uh, you know, we've done we've done stuff over the years. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, so oh, oh, and then there, there, of course, there, there's a lot of other, um, oh, it's so, so many people. You know, in the early days in Nashville, everybody sort of, it was, it was like a big community. Every, most, everybody kind of almost knew everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, you got to know, you know, I'm talking about, you know, Mel Tillis had his studio three three buildings down from 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 the Glazer studio and, and and so there was that whole world the whole that whole Mel Tillis world and then there was Jack Clement and the and the Johnny Cash thing and then there was there was just so many there was all these little pockets of Alan Reynolds uh, you know that that entire. Jack's tracks thing and and, and and all that. They're wonderful, wonderful people, and and interleaved. You, you know the history of uh, the history of uh, the country music in Nashville is really comes down to. Oh, I'll bet you could narrow it down to twenty or thirty people that that really you know formed uh, what ended up becoming the country music scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As well you know. Well, there were different camps, and as people, as you said earlier, 
other people spun off. So you had Garth Fundus and you had, uh, certainly you had Alan who had worked with Jack and then, uh, Harold Shedd, Harold Shedd. That, that, there, there was all that, and that, that was Alabama, and, and I ended up, I, I worked for Harold for a while, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing, uh, how it was. Well, and, and just to be around greatness, and did you know at the time you were making magic, or you just sort of basically chasing paycheck to paycheck, or was there a little bit of both? Oh, I was all, I never, I, I always went, I was project to project, paycheck to paycheck. It didn't matter how big the artist was you were working with or whatever. You, everybody was struggling, it seemed like. It, it, it was, it was funny that people think that everybody was making all this money and some people were making really good money, but most people were getting by in a good way, but not, not, you know, it was, it was what it was. We were, we were, we were musicians, we were engineers, we were people chasing dreams. We were uh, all of the above. There was another, there was such a massive system in Nashville because you had, you had the publishing company community, you know, which supported the record industry. And it's so hard to explain, but then, you know, once again, in these houses, and there was, there was publishing companies and that's sort of how everybody networked. You know, you would go to these meetings and, and, and there was writers that wrote for different publishing companies and you would go in and you would go in and, and have these meetings and they would play you, play you songs that were, you know, had just been written and just demoed and things and everybody relied on everybody to hand out cassettes and pass them around and get the songs to people and, it was really like opening Christmas presents all the time because you, 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 you were, it was like a treasure hunt is really what it, what it was really like looking for songs and, and, uh, just an amazing system that, you know, most people, you know, people out in the world, regular world don't, they don't realize that all this goes on. They just know that, that when they, if they listen to the radio, that there's a new song playing. But they, they don't realize what what really went into to having that song be written and demoed and caught and all the things that have to happen in order for something like that to take place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you have any idea where we were going to be heading? And, and I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good things about what's gone on with the business in so many ways that the playing field's leveled. Uh, in some ways, you can get music out a lot quicker. Uh, there aren't that many labels, but then people have recording studios literally in their in their apartments, in their homes, even on their phones, in a sense. And then, you know, I talked with a friend of mine uh, recently, and there's AI, and there's all the controversy about AI. And he said, you know, I use AI all the time to write and to produce. So it's that's another... Uh, tool that we didn't have available before that instead of fearing it are there ways that we can use ai and and how do we interpret how do we control it but how do we use it as a tool so i think it's it can be potentially we can either be very fearful or we can look at it as a very exciting time in history as technology is ramped ramping up every single day there's something new that's being discovered how, how where where's your point of reference on this how do you feel about it 
I'm completely uh, uh, involved in constantly being challenged with technology. I'm sitting in front of, I'm sitting in my own control room in my own studio right now, and and I have, you know, I have a yet another program that's been invented, and uh, that's sitting in front of me that I've been uh, maneuvering through. Uh, the the learning curve is is. Uh, is amazing and we have to always embrace the technology just like Owen brought the digital tape recorder to the industry we all have to always be looking at what is what is in front of us as far as technology and it, it, it it's been really interesting coming from the background that I have which was all the old school and the, the analog and the real recording where everybody got together in a room and now having to obviously use the new computers and and the things that are happening we can do things that you we couldn't even have dreamt of doing many years ago mm-hmm. and and yes I, I i think that i i know some people that are that are actually famous writers right now and i've had this discussion uh, already with them and yes people are using ai because it's 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 like a big encyclopedia is mm-hmm. what it is. It's 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 amazing the amount of data and the amount of things that you have at your disposal uh, as far as uh, what technology is capable of doing. And it doesn't, you know, AI is 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 only as dangerous. It's dangerous if someone's using it dangerously. But if you're using it in a um, in a in a in a helpful and you know it can really help you sort through you know like you're you've got an idea going and you can't get your you can't quite figure out how to how to word it where it makes sense you can actually you can just type in the general thing you're trying to say and it will spit back out you know uh, 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 an amazing uh, phrase or something that you that you that you were trying to get out of your mind but you couldn't you couldn't quite make it connect, and that's that's what people are saying is happening with AI right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I don't. It, it it doesn't seem to be. You know, people don't use it to write melodies, but it's certainly helping people with lyrics. And I'm sure that in your industry, it's it's what you're doing right now. Uh, in your your take on it, I, I'm sure AI is is a helpful tool. So I don't know how much you've played with it yet, but it's uh, it's coming on fast. Yeah, absolutely. Um talk about a little bit about what 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 is some of the best advice that you received looking back? I mean, you and I are about the same age and and we came up together through the business. We met I think well, I'll say we met at Woodland Sound when I was managing Tiffany and we were working on a country music project and you were engineering and I think Peter McCann was producing or involved with it. You were co-producing with him. That's when we first met, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, see, we, we met in the coffee, around the coffee, there was a little room where we yeah. had the coffee and the cakes and, and you were, you were, we were both in there and we started talking uh, I guess, well, what had happened is, yeah, P- Peter had come over to the studio to work, 
and you 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 had come you had you'd come over to check out what was going on and then that's when we that's when we 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 met we started talking in the in the break room is what happened that's how we met mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and um and i don't know we just became friends after that because we uh we obviously connected and we we had to pam Willis and Eric Paul have done a lot of things over the years. We've, we've been through some really interesting some, things. Some of them even good. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's for sure. Give, so, give, me some, so. give me some good advice that you were given that, that maybe you didn't even know at the time how important the advice was. Oh, well, some of the best advice I ever heard was to listen to people. I think that listening rather than speaking is sometimes better. And um, I think and I know that there's no substitute for hard work. And those are the those are the things that, that I, I, I mean, it's hard to say what specific advice I got, but. Well, when I when I listen to you, you've been it's almost like Forrest Gump. The people that you've worked with, the rooms that you've been able to sit and the people that you've rubbed elbows with, it's just a who's who. And I think that you kind of would feel the fear and do it anyway. I mean, for you to pick up and move here and not know anybody and just have a slip of paper and $1,000 that Phil gave you and you start working with Bowen, I mean, that's courageous. Some people would not have gotten out of their comfort zone. They would have stayed in New York. And you just picked up and left. And so I think it's it's like you just keep going and you just keep challenging. You know, you're challenging yourself. It seems like to me, since I've known you. And uh, Yeah. It's a drive. There's a drive inside of you that, that keeps going. And um, you can't, you, you, you just can't stop. Um, Willie Nelson always, he used to say, he used to call it mobiling. And, um, meaning that whatever was, whatever, some of the really, really advice by action is what, is what I've, what I've learned, a lot of what I've learned. Um, and take someone like Willie Nelson. He, will always wherever something goes wherever whatever he's doing whoever he's working with when 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 a path opens up or somebody gets an idea willie doesn't just leave it as an idea he actually does it so so that's 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 called drive and 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 that sometimes you're you get in big trouble but but usually it works out so so meaning that you know you you don't get anywhere in life if you don't take opportunities and chances mm-hmm. so that's kind of been ingrained in me and i've always lived that life you know like you said i once i moved to austin i would go back and forth between austin and nashville and i still do I mean, for, for many, many, many years, I kept a house in both places because I would, I, I enjoy change and I enjoy traveling and I enjoy, you know, um, there's a famous song uh, that has a line in it, um, 
movement's the closest thing to being free. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that is that is the truth, really. Um, I, I think uh, that you have to follow your dreams and follow your heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of, like when you were growing up, what kind of music were you listening to? I know you were listening to uh, Yes, I Have No Bananas, but were there like favorite bands you loved, or were you, did you start? Did you start? Oh yeah, I mean, I I I had a record. I was into records early on. I mean, I had, I I think it in the early days it was um, it was like um, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Ray, mm-hmm. uh, early Bonnie Ray, you know, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash. Um, I was really into Elton John. Um, uh, James Taylor, you know, all the Northeast pop. I, I, I was, was not that familiar with, I didn't get exposed to very much country music, but, but those were the things I liked. Um, America. Oh yeah. You know, Ventura, that kind of stuff. Ventura Highway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was. It was probably normal. I grew up listening to WABC in New York, you know, on AM radio, you know, pop music. So, so yeah, that that was what I was. But then I was also playing. I was, you know, my mother used to play. Uh, she liked listening to like classical music, and she liked listening to, uh, you know, it, it, she had a whole different thing, and so I was exposed to a lot of that and. Um, yeah, very musical. What would you like your legacy to be uh, if people were thinking and talking about you? And what would you like to be? How would you like to be remembered? And what what is there that you haven't done that you want to do? Is there a place you want to visit? Is there someone you'd like to record? What's your bucket list, Eric? Oh, well, uh, I, if I'm known for anything, I want to be known as as a man that when he makes music and records it, that it sounds amazing. And uh, I, I've always been proud of my work and as far as my recording. So first and foremost, I want to be known as a, as a, 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 a very, very fine engineer. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then, of course, my production, you know, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I'm an, it, it comes from within me. So yeah, I have, I have aspirations of, uh, I still have projects that I, uh, am trying to get, to get going right now. And, um, you know, I'm really just kind of in, into a, a new phase right now that I'm just kind of embarking on right now. I, I, I guess the second act or something, I, I sort of had the first act, and I, I, I retracted a little bit, and now I'm getting ready to, uh, I'm getting ready to delve back into it again, and and try to make some uh, music that, that that uh, makes a difference in the world. That's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know? I know that you're you're a spiritual guy because we talk about I was born uh, Catholic, and you've converted to Catholicism, and and you were Lutheran, so you you get up in the morning on the weekend and. You know, you're singing in choir, and you're there. You're a music director at church. I mean, it's it's just how you live. It's what you do, and it's almost like it's it's in your bones. And if you're not doing it, 
you, you're very successful in real estate. And I, I love it because you have another source of income. You're, you're being diversified. But uh, I just know that your spiritual life is important to you. Do you want to touch on that a little bit and where that leads you or where, how that grounds you? My spiritual life has always been um, uh, strong. I, I, I was, uh, I grew up going to church. I, I had aspirations in the, in, in one point. Uh, I traveled, I traveled, uh, when I was in high school, I traveled in a, a gospel singing group singing. Um, I've always had, um, Christian music has always been, I've been weaved in and out of it. I, I, a big record that I did in Christian music is, there was a, Bill Gaither has something called the Homecoming series, and the original Homecoming record, I engineered that. It was produced by Ken Mansfield, and um, Bill Gaither was, it was his record company, it took place, the original Gulf War is when that took place, that record. And um, it was actually, the original Gulf War was, was going on when we were recording that record, and that was at a studio in Nashville called uh, Master's Touch. Uh -huh. And it was a log cabin over behind the old A-Cup Rose off of 8th Avenue. And it was... Um, that was an amazing record. It was, it was a, all these old traditional gospel acts were all there in the same building. And we had, it, we recorded for an entire week and everybody was there. And it was like a prayer meeting every day in there. Wow. And that, that, that record got, it won a Dove Award. Okay. Which is the equivalent of a Grammy in the, in the Christian music world. And, um, so I, I've always, you know, I've always, um, I've always had a foot and a toe in, 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 in Christian music. I have, I haven't lately done anything, but, um, yeah, that's the, the, definitely, I have a very strong, uh, that, that strong faith and, uh, and, uh, I let, I let my life be guided by uh, the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're and you're not ashamed to say that. I mean, you just. I mean, you're not a preachy person, whatever at all. I mean, we we get on the phone and we talk and laugh and gossip and. But I, I just know that that's part of who you are. It's important to you. Yes. Anything else? Any advice you'd like to give? Give or any any parting words. The best advice that I can give to anybody is to follow your dreams and do what your heart is telling you to do in all instances. Because if you're if you're not if you're not doing something you have a passion for, then um, you know then then you're not. Um, you're not doing yourself justice. I, I, I think I think a lot of people, including yourself, Pam, are are driven by something they love to do. And I think that's the advice I would give anybody is to follow your dreams. Mm -hmm. There you go. 
I love you, Eric Paul. Thank you for putting up with me all these years. We've had yeah. we've had many many a long and um, I mean I think we've saved a lot of money on shrink bills the two of us over the years haven't we? <laughs> but thank you for joining well, I'll tell me. Well, one thing for sure: the the, it, the music industry is a is a is a tough tough business, and um, and it, it, it takes you have to just keep going. Oh, the other advice I would give people is. Don't be worried about the word no. Oh, there the you go. The word no is okay. Because eventually somebody's going to say yes. There you go. Just have to, I think you just keep showing up as, as good things happen. That's right. Thank you, my dear.